Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Nick, today's episode of the podcast is presented by Podgo. Nick, funny question. Do you know what Podgo is? <laughs> They're the reason we get paid, man. I'm very familiar with Podgo. <laughs> yeah, we, Podgo, folks, is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters a flat rate for ad space. You always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. All you got to do is apply today to become a member. Uh, Nick, what's the website? Well, give me the URL real quick for the people. Just podgo.co, P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. That's it. Right away, you become a member today. Be sure to add that you heard about this. You heard about Podgo and put in Can We Please Talk in that section of the application. Hey everybody, welcome back. Another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Severa. Nicky, my boy, we're back, man. We haven't, you know, we haven't filmed an episode, it feels like, in forever for the people out there. You know, obviously they see an episode each week, but you and I have not talked in in, in at least another week or so. So how have you been, my friend? I'm good, man. I'm good. I mean, I'm grateful. I mean, we obviously text. I mean, we see all kinds right. of wild stuff all the time. But uh, yeah, we, we were just talking about this today, like not recording, like your your recording muscles kind of, you know, atrophy a little bit. You're, you know, we, we haven't been on the mic and like fiending for it. <laughs> That's right. what we were talking about getting before getting on tonight. So I'm good, man. How are you all doing? I'm, I'm good, man. You know, everybody's doing good. The family's doing good. Uh, you know, just surviving here uh, with everything going on in the pandemic. Um, tonight's episode 
you know, we Nick and I had talked about. Don't don't shake your head just yet. We, we I'm had talked head about because people need to know. People, need <laughs> yeah. to know what's we, we got. I think we got a pretty good episode for people tonight. We talked about this weeks ago uh, when we had Ishra Deuce go on, uh, and the storming of the Capitol had just happened the day before. We wanted to get somebody on to really talk about the historical context of all of this, right? Like something so crazy, like an insurrection at our nation's capital. But then over the weekend, you and I were texting Nick. And the Trump impeachment trial ended on Saturday and uh, President Trump was again acquitted. Um, So the first time in U.S. history that a president has been impeached twice and acquitted twice. So it's something so crazy. And we can think of nobody better than a famed historian and Pulitzer Prize winning historian. Uh, Eric Foner is going to be joining us tonight. He's a professor at Columbia University. He's written some fantastic books, not only about the Civil War and Reconstruction, but also about Abraham Lincoln. And I could think of nobody better to really put into words what happened on January 6, 2021. Look at this. These protesters are inside Statuary Hall right now. You see the statues. This is a, a moment I never saw in my life. These individuals just rush through security. They are inside Statuary Hall. This is a legendary a legendary place uh, where all of us uh, who've covered Capitol Hill, it's hard to believe what we're seeing right there. They're just walking through. Where are Capitol Police? Uh, it, it's, it's a strange, it's an awful situation. They're having a good time in Statuary Hall. Jake Tapper, uh, I don't know about you, but this is an incredibly dangerous situation that's unfolding here in the United States. You know, if you were having the equivalent of the Wu-Tang Clan of American historians in the modern day, <laughs> You know, if that's the reference, yeah, sure. Yeah, the clan goes 10 deep. <laughs> right. Professor Fulner's there. I mean, he might be the Jizza. I don't know if he's necessarily Rizza, but he's there. He's he's in the squad. Right. And he's with us tonight. I mean, he's up there, honestly, with Doris Kearns Goodwin, you know, obviously noted presidential historian. You've right. got John Meacham, who's put out to yeah, us, John Joe Ellis. Yeah, but of all these folks, Professor Fulner is that dude. I mean, matters of reconstruction, talking about the Civil War. You know, he's the person that I found connecting to in just terms of his books. Like I'm currently reading Reconstruction, which right. arguably is the definitive text for trying to understand that period in American history. He's that man and he's coming on tonight. Yeah, he he has written some fantastic books. You could check it out, ericfoner.com. You know, you think about um, that period of time and then what's happened now <laughs> and the parallels. I'm, and I'm sure he's been asked this a bunch on different interviews, but it's just the, the parallels are eer- eerily similar to, to what happened. And I would love to get, you know, from him tonight as well. Um, what we just talked about with, with the Trump impeachment, you know, this is the first time in U.S. history, you know, a president's been impeached twice, acquitted twice. Um, this is the shortest impeachment trial in U.S. history. Uh, what does he make of President Trump's legacy and also Trump supporters? You know, because there's this stigma of Trump supporters are kind of separate from the Republican base, like almost as if they're like a third uh, uh, political party. And I don't think we've seen anything like this in American history. Maybe McCarthyism, the rise in the 50s, um, just for a brief time until Senator McCarthy was kind of exposed, you know, during the television advent. But um, just so many things to talk with, you know, Professor Fona. We are just so excited that he's going to be joining us tonight. Nick, before we get into tonight's episode, which is presented by Away Travel, um, you know, luggages, man. Have you been to awaytravel.com, their website? 
It's funny. It's funny you mentioned that. I, I just did. Uh, we are up for new bags at the house. So I was just checking out the stuff uh, just recently. Um, suitcases, bags, awesome stuff. Yeah. They, I mean, it's such great quality stuff. Here's the thing, right? Like we're moving back to New York, my wife and I in April, and I'm, I'm not big on packing in boxes. I hate boxes and we need luggage. And I went to awaytravel.com. I bought a couple sets there. Um, they have some great pieces from like the carry-ons to the mediums to the large. They got good sets for the kids. Uh, I'm just the quality of these suitcases. I mean, you you correct me if I'm wrong here. I mean, they're just great. And, you know, with Away, your suitcase will be with you for life. And we're teaming up with Away and Podgo to kind of give you the best deal on premium luggage. So, Nick, what do they got to do, Nick? What, what do you think that they got to do? We always tell people to go to what? It's, you got to go to podgo.co. In this case, you can go podgo.co slash away, A-W-A-Y. That's it. Podgo.co backslash away, like Nick just told you, away travel, here to make your journey seamless. All right, Nick, our guest tonight, uh, we are so excited to have him. He is a former professor at Columbia University, famed American historian, Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, He's written so many books about the Civil War, the Reconstruction, and Abraham Lincoln, and that is none other than Eric Foner. Professor Foner, Mike Leon, Nick Savary, thanks so much for uh, hopping on with us tonight. Oh, happy to talk to you. Yes. Um, We were so excited uh, to have you on, sir, because I can think of no one better. We were talking about this off air with everything that's going on um, over the last couple of days with the impeachment trial, with what happened on January 6th in our nation's capital. Um, I wanted to ask you, let's start with what happened Saturday with the impeachment trial from a historical perspective. um, First time ever a president's been impeached twice and acquitted twice. The fastest trial uh, ever in history (laughs) for an impeachment. Are we going to ever see anything like this again in American history? Uh, You know, uh, I think the Trump, the presidency of Donald Trump has uh, shown that uh, things that one thought were impossible and would never be seen happened. So uh, I'm not willing to predict that we won't have another uh, president like this or a set of events like this. I hope not, but uh, it's not impossible. I mean, you know, I think one of the things we've learned from these two impeachments is that impeachment is a fairly blunt instrument for getting at what a majority of the Senate, certainly this time, thought um, were the real issues. That is the president's, in, you know, incitement of a riot. Now, some senators said, well, you can't try a guy who is no longer in office. Some of them said, well, you have to have committed an indictable offense. But the fact is that, you know, in our system, in most places in the world, Trump would long have been out of office in a parliamentary system. Uh, you know, if you lose a majority in Congress or in the parliament, you're out. Um, and that has happened many, many times. But here, when we, we have a separate election for president, very often the president does not control both houses of uh, Congress with his party, and that's fine. But, um, <clears throat> You know, impeachment, to sort of get rid of a president who is manifestly incompetent, racist, unfit for the position, there's no very clear way of doing it. And in fact, you know, the real charges against Trump are not purely what was listed in the article or articles of impeachment. Uh, It's just general unfitness for office, but that's not an impeachable offense, it seems. 
Yeah, thinking about the impeachment trial, uh, the events on January 6th, as you're starting to do here, um, how does it, I mean, from a historical context, how does looking into our past better explain and sort of give us a sense of like the steps that sort of brought us here? Yeah, well, you know, um, as you said, uh, uh, Mike, uh, I've spent a lot of my academic career studying the Civil War, and particularly the Reconstruction period that came right after. And, um, you know, I was like millions of people watching these events unfold on TV on January 6th and more and more kind of shocked and alarmed at what was happening. But as commentators were saying, you know, oh, this is not us, or this has never happened before, this is not, I, I yelled at the TV, you know, <laughs> said, no, that's not true. This has happened before. We have seen this before. Nobody alive today but if you know American history in the Reconstruction period, you have seen mobs overthrowing democratically elected biracial governments. This happened in Reconstruction and afterwards. It's not unprecedented in our history. The Wilmington riot, 1898 in uh, North Carolina, where a duly elected biracial government was just a coup d'etat evicted by a white supremacist mob and driven out of office and new people took over the city or go back into reconstruction, the Colfax massacre, much more violent than what we saw. Dozens of African-American militia members were killed by armed whites uh, taking over the government of Grant Parish, uh, Louisiana, the White League uprising in 1874 in uh, New Orleans trying to overthrow the elected government of Louisiana. In other words, uh, we've seen this. We've seen this toxic brew of white supremacy, of hostility to actual democracy, and willingness to just use force to, uh, to gain your political aims. You know, this kind of domestic terrorism has existed at many points in American history. In Reconstruction, it was the Ku Klux Klan, the White League, groups like that. Um, so this is part of the American tradition. It's not the only American tradition. You know, what struck me was on that one day, we saw these events, but that morning we saw the certification or the announcement that these two new senators had been elected in Georgia, a black man and a Jewish man. And if you know the history of Georgia, you'd have to say that's a pretty remarkable thing. Uh, a state that was central to the slave system, central to the uh, lost cause later on, uh, anti-Semitism, very powerful there. Um, so, you know, the historian can delineate historical precedents, but we are not imprisoned by history. People can change, you know, and that's what that election in Georgia suggested, even while all these other people are going in the completely opposite direction. You know, I, I want to touch on something you said there, Professor, because I, I would love for you to put at least the Trump movement. And it seems like Trump supporters are now this tertiary um, existing uh, political party. It's the Republicans, it's the Democrats, and then it's Trumpers. I've never seen anything like this in American politics, and I'm not that old, but maybe since McCarthyism, you heard about it in textbooks and the rise of Senator McCarthy in the 50s and how the swelling kind of grew and how he was calling out people for being communists within the party. Is there anything close to what Senator McCarthy did? Is is it comparable with, with what the Trump movement? Well, 
Yeah, that's a that's an interesting uh, analogy, actually. It hadn't occurred to me, uh, but I think there's some merit. I mean, yes, you're right. The the Trump base or supporters, or whatever you want to call them, they are Republicans, but they're not really wedded to the Republican Party, except as so, except to the extent that Trump is the titular leader of the Republican Party. Many of them dislike the so-called establishment Republicans, the traditional Republicans. They don't feel a loyalty to the institution. They feel a loyalty to a single person. Uh, it's a cult, in my view, a cult of a particular individual. And yeah, we have had that, but much more on the state level than on the national level. Uh, another name that pops into my mind is Huey Long, the uh, kingfish, you know, the guy who... who uh, controlled Louisiana politics for, uh, uh, po you know, part of the 1930s, eventually assassinated. But, um, you know, Huey Long had this popular following, uh, which was, he was a Democrat. That was the only party in Louisiana at that time. But it was Huey Long, not the Democratic Party, that was uh, gathering up the support. So, you know, and then you might say George Wallace back in the 1960s, uh, a guy who, uh, was a Democrat, a segregationist Democrat, but built up support among all sorts of people, and um, you know showed that you by that white nationalism can be its own political movement, which can work within parties, but is not beholden to any particular uh, political party. So, yeah, you can find and now, but what's What's new here is the president. Now, of course, every president is popular among his supporters. I don't care if it was FDR or Kennedy or, you know, uh, Obama or others. Um, but this kind of cult of the of the individual is quite unusual. And now, you know, the founding fathers did not want to have a dynastic uh, presidency. They, one of the reasons they kind of thought George Washington would be a good guy is he had no children and he was not likely to have any more children. In fact, it seems like the father of our country could not do that. Well, that's, that's not a problem really for being president, but, um, you know, but we've had, we had the Bushes, we had the Adamses, we had the Clintons, but now we have the Trumps. So people are saying, well, Laura Trump, his daughter-in-law should run for the Senate or uh, his daughter, Ivanka Trump, should run for something or other in Florida. So when they put themselves forward, they're just putting themselves forward as supporters of Trump, not as Republicans who are linked really to the party structure in any way. So it's an unusual situation in our political history, no question about it. There are some precedents, but uh, probably not that, not that many. And it does make you wonder, you know, I, I, as a historian, uh, I'm always interested in what, you know, what people think about our history. And it's very common to say, well, we are the symbol of democracy for the whole world. You know, we are the last best hope, as Lincoln said, or we or as Lincoln also said in the Gettysburg Address, you know, uh, we the purpose of the war is to preserve democracy in the world, government of the people, by the people. Um, but now we see that there's a lot of people who don't actually respect democracy in our country. They don't. They think if you lost the election, it was stolen from you. They're willing to take up arms in order to try to prevent the counting of electoral votes. We have to be more candid about our own history and the fact that 
alongside this democratic tradition is a strong anti-democratic tradition, often, not always, but often linked to race and to white supremacy. And um, it's out there now, it's visible, it's, it, you can hear it on the internet anytime you want, and um, it's uh, dangerous. You know, thinking about, and I'm going to sort of put you back, you know, just getting into your wheelhouse, you know, talking about the Civil War and Reconstruction. Yeah. It feels for me coming, you know, when I was in high school, you know, from, you know, the the end of the Civil War at Appomattox Courthouse in, you know, 1865. From there to, you know, Teddy Roosevelt's presidency in 1900, there seems to be a 35-year gap in terms of clarity as to what had happened in this country. And oftentimes we think a part of that period is what we refer to as Reconstruction. Professor, if you wouldn't mind just taking a moment. How would you best explain those 35 years? But also, why is yeah. it that, and I pride myself on being a pretty good student in American history, but why is that that feels somewhat murky, that those 35 years, the way that they're sort of... You're, you're, you're right. I mean, I can't argue with what you just said. And it's, um, it's unfortunate for me in that I've spent most of my career to studying Reconstruction, but I can hardly claim that most people are that aware of it, although it has been in the news a lot lately. Uh, and, uh, you know, with impeachment, as you say, with white supremacist mobs, with, uh, you know, the 14th Amendment being discussed and things like that. You know, in a nutshell, Reconstruction uh, is, it's a time period right after the Civil War, but more important, it's a process. It's the process by which the country tries to come to terms with the consequences of the Civil War, and the number one consequence is the destruction of the institution of slavery. What does it mean that we now have 4 million people who were slaves and are now free? What is gonna be their status? Are they gonna have the same rights as white people, the same political rights, civil rights, economic rights? Um, you know, or are they gonna occupy some subordinate second-class status? Are they gonna be citizens? That's what Reconstruction is all about. And in Reconstruction, you saw the creation of the first genuine democracy in American history, the first biracial democracy in which African-American men, uh, women couldn't vote anywhere at this time, obviously, but the first male uh, real democracy where African-American men voted in large numbers for the first time before the Civil War. They can only do that in a handful of states in New England uh, where there were hardly any black people. Um, and uh, held public office. My estimate is about 2,000 black men held some public office uh, from U.S. Senate down to Justice of the Peace uh, during Reconstruction. And it was a political revolution, a remarkable one, put forward by African-Americans themselves, demanding their rights, their citizenship, their recognition as political actors, and radical Republicans in the North. It was an biracial thing, white Republicans willing to try to overcome the legacy of racism in this country. Um, these governments create, you know, led to a violent backlash. There's no question about it. And, you know, we know the Klan was founded in Reconstruction and there were many other groups sort of along those lines. And eventually a combination of violent opposition and a kind of retreat in the North or a loss of commitment or a loss of interest led to a waning of Reconstruction until by 1877, every Southern state was uh, under the control again of white supremacist Democrats. So Reconstruction was over, although it didn't just end at one moment. Maybe TR, as you said, is a good ending point. 
the last third of the night, or the last 25 years of the 19th century was a kind of a, a twilight zone. Blacks could still vote in many places, still hold office, but their prospects were much diminished. The Republican Party was slowly abandoning its commitment to protecting the rights of black people. But it took a good while. And then the Supreme Court, one of the lessons here is what can happen to you under a conservative Supreme Court? You know, and in those 25, 30 years, the court little by little whittled away at the laws and, and the great constitutional amendments of Reconstruction, the 13th, which abolished slavery, the 14th, which created birthright citizenship and equal protection of the law, put the concept of equality into the Constitution, and the 15th, which was supposed to guarantee the right of black men to vote. Um, Supreme Court let those things be abrogated or over, you know, just ignored in the South for a long, long time. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm giving you here a long lecture on Reconstruction, but I'll just say that one of the lessons of that history is that you can't take your rights for granted. You know, <laughs> rights can be gained, rights can be put in the Constitution, but they can also be taken away from you. And we're seeing that today. You see, the thing yeah. about Reconstruction is we are living in it in a way, or we're living with the issues of Reconstruction now. Who should be a citizen? That's a Reconstruction question. Right. Who should have the right to vote in this country? That's being fought over and stated. To, that's, a <clears throat> that's a Reconstruction question. Right. Um, how do you deal with domestic terrorism? That's a Reconstruction question. What about economic equality along with political equality? In other words, you can't understand American society today without knowing something about Reconstruction, even though a lot of people probably don't. Right. Well, I want to stay on education because obviously you're, you're a former professor. Nick has worked in education for 20 years. What do you make of our education system? Uh, it, we, we've seen the 1776 Project that came to light recently. We've seen teachers uh, in different states and there, there's been viral clips of teachers uh, taking things out of context or, or teaching people different things with regards to slavery, uh, et cetera. As a former professor, what, what do you make of what's happened to our yeah. education system over the last, you know, let's say, let's say. I, I think we, we don't uh, devote enough resources to education of any kind. I, and I'm, you know, the basic problem with history education in this country is that there isn't enough of it. Yes, there are some people who are teaching a very old fashioned, distorted history, but there's actually a lot of good teachers out there too. I don't want to just, you know, why just say, oh, all history teaching is no good. That's not true. I've spent a lot of my career as a college professor lecturing to conventions of high school teachers I used to run a seminar every summer for high school teachers from around the country about how to teach the Reconstruction period. Um, I, you know, I've written a textbook, which is widely used in high school uh, history classes. Uh, there's a lot of good teachers. The problem is states. We got 50 different state education systems in this country, and uh, a lot of them don't really respect history, especially lately. You know, it's STEM. We've got a teach them technology, you know, we got to teach them engineering, we got to prepare them for jobs in the uh, future of, uh, I don't know, so they can create better dating apps or whatever they're going to be trained to do. <laughs> so, um, you know, so therefore history becomes a luxury. And uh, 
And in fact, the no child left behind system, which Bush began and Obama continued really, um, you know, it makes history a kind of an outcast. You know, schools that have a lot of resources can teach history and teach it well. Schools that don't, their money funding is based on kids, uh, students' test scores in math and uh, science, you know, math and English. Where's history? Doesn't matter. If you teach history, you're actually taking away from teaching them for the test that's going to determine if your school um, has money or not. So there's just not enough history education. Now, yes, of course, history has become politicized. It's a, it's a um, combatant in the culture wars. Uh, you have the 1619 Project, which uh, the New York Times put forward, which, you know, had flaws like anything else, but I think was a very serious effort to move beyond a lot of mythology about American history. And then President Trump, just before he left office, came up with the 1776 Project, which was to restore all this mythology as best they could. Uh, luckily, that kind of sank beneath the waves once Trump was uh, out of office. Um, but the real problem, as I say, is there just should be more emphasis on the teaching of history. I'm in New York State. I'm not sure where you guys are. It doesn't matter. We're on Zoom, right? But, you know, in New York, you can go through all of high school and not get a full year of American history anymore. Uh, and that's ridiculous, in my opinion. So um, we need to do more for history education. No question about it. Yeah, I know yeah. a bunch of history teachers that would agree with you. <laughs> Yeah, I, I have a lot of friends in the education sector, obviously, and they will be very excited when this episode gets pushed out because it confirms a lot of the things that we've we've all known in the field. I, I would add to what you're saying, civics education. You know, we do romanticize yeah. wars oftentimes with the process of how these things. Uh, you know, yeah, that's right. I, but I remember I'm old enough. I'm, I'm old enough to know to have had civics in high school. I grew up in Long Island, suburbs of New York City. I still remember my civics class and that's not what we need now i mean my civics class yeah we look how a, i still remember the how a bill becomes a law someone introduces it a committee in the house blah blah you know lobbyists never mentioned mm -hmm. uh, members of congress having to raise money from corporations and how that affects legislation mm -hmm. never mentioned uh you know it, it what the, you learned the whole structure, but you actually didn't learn anything about how the system really operates. You know, so that's not I'm not saying that's not what we need now. We do need civic education, but we need civic education about what it means to be an engaged citizen in this country, in a democracy. Well, how do you change things for the better? You know, I want to direct um, something that I want something I remember reading in the, in the introduction to your book on Reconstruction was. This idea of changing schools of thought, and you talked about the Dunning School, you know, and right. what was the the understanding of Reconstruction in that period, Professor? If you could just take a few minutes, um, and, I, and I know you don't like to make yourself the point here, but I, I'm going to make you the point. From <laughs> that change of thought, though, from one viewpoint to your contribution to this discourse, what was the shift from the Dunning School to what you were putting <laughs> forward into other? Well, the shift was was uh, number one, the civil rights revolution, the Dunning School. I have a complicated relationship to the Dunning School because Dunning was a professor at Columbia University long before me, around 1900. But in other words, I'm his successor as the guy who teaches the Civil War era 
at Columbia. Um, and in fact, the history department has a Dunning Fund, which gives little grants to professors like, when I was doing research, I could get a grant, you know, I got to travel for a week to some place to go to the archives and the Dunning Fund would pay my airfare. And I always thought that was kind of ironic because I'm traveling around <laughs> trying to destroy this guy's view of history. And yet the Dunning Fund is financing it. But, um, you know, the thing is, it tells you about the study of history. And in some ways, it doesn't tell you a very uh, pleasant thing about it. The great, you know, the great link, in a sense, between the Dunning School and what I and other people did more recently is W.B. Du Bois's great book, Black Reconstruction in America. And the final chapter of that book is called The Propaganda of History. We've heard about fake news a lot lately, but there was this fake history. And it's a commentary on our profession, I'm sorry to say, that for years they spewed out fake history that Reconstruction was a total disaster. It was the lowest point in the whole American saga. It was a period of misgovernment and corruption. Why? Why was that? Because black men were given the right to vote. That was the great error of Reconstruction, according to that view. Because black people just simply can't, they're not, in, they're not capable of exercising democratic rights intelligently. And that was part of, not that, wasn't just an academic analysis, that was part of the legitimation of the Jim Crow system in the South. If you say, hey, wait a minute, they took the right to vote away from black people, they should give it back. And white Southern, oh, no, 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 we can't do that because look, we'd have the horrors of reconstruction again. This was a justification for subordinating black people because of what they supposedly had done during reconstruction. And it's a as I say, it's an embarrassment to our profession as historians that this is the role historians were playing, not every single one of them, but a lot of them, uh, in the 1920s, in the 1930s, in the 1940s, uh, in the 1950s. You could find this in historical, in textbooks, in law cases. Uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, back in 2004, published a book about the election of 1876, which ended Reconstruction, and Rehnquist's book was based on the Dunning School. That's the Chief Justice of the United States in 2004, long after no reputable historian would say that anymore. And yet there it was, and it affected his interpretation of the laws and constitutional amendments. Nick, a new year, new beginning, and for all the listeners out there that want to own a business, we're going to tell them a little bit about FedEx office today. Nick, I know you, you've used FedEx office in the past, no? I have, man. I got, got myself a little side hustle, but you know, when you're going to send stuff out to people, you, you got to go reliable. So I, I go with FedEx. You know, if you got to go with a name that you trust, and if you're just starting folks, or you've been running your company for generations, uh, let me tell you about FedEx office because they give you the best way to print marketing materials, posters, signage, graphics, so much more, you know, and with FedEx creating, editing, saving, ordering. It's all fast and easy. So we're going to team up with FedEx and Podgo. Well, we currently are teaming up with them and we're bringing our listeners, Nick, 30% off their next nice. order of a hundred bucks or more. All you got to do podgo.co backslash FedEx. You get 30% off your next order. FedEx, the world on time. Professor Foner, I, I wanted to ask you something. Um, because given how much history you have studied uh, yourself personally, uh, obviously you've won a Pulitzer Prize, but does everything feel 
connected in terms of all these events or, or have you seen something and been like, oh, I've never seen that before. Like, like <laughs> just, just in a president being impeached twice. I've never seen that before. Did you no, ever think you would see that. something we like saw, that? We saw Andrew Johnson impeached once and Andrew Johnson was a sort of precursor to Trump actually uh, as a guy who played on racial hostilities and, you know, was, was so egomaniacal that he thought that no one else mattered, you know, uh, and the first president to be impeached. And one of the complaints against him was inciting a riot. The New Orleans riot of 1866, the Memphis riot, where white policemen led a mob to assault the black neighborhood in Memphis. You know, Black Lives Matter. It's not, so, it's not new that policemen use violence against black people. That happened in Reconstruction and was one of the things that led to the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Uh, but I no, history doesn't repeat itself. A lot of things, I'm always saying I've never seen this before. I don't, I don't believe that we've heard it all or seen it all. Uh, and uh, even though we, we, like to, they, they, we like to create analogies between different time periods and different processes, as I say, we're not trapped in history. We can, we can make the decision to move beyond it. And um, I hope as a society, we will be able to do that. Professor, I'm just shifting gears to think a little bit differently. Um, obviously, you're a noted history professor uh, and a, you know award-winning author. If the history thing didn't work out, though, what would do you feel like you would have become? Where would you have seen yourself? <laughs> Political analyst is my guess. You know, uh, I, when I went to college... I was not a history. I didn't want to study history, even though my father was a historian. I knew a lot of history, but I was a physics major. I wanted to become an astronomer. I was a kid growing up. I had a little telescope. I'd put it on our lawn at night and look up at the, uh, the moon or whatever. Uh, I was very interested. I'm still in science. In in uh, you know, as I say, um, that's my second love. And um, yeah, maybe I'll, now that I'm retired as a historian, I can start out getting another degree in astronomy. I never got my degree because what, here's what happened. In my junior year, I took a year long history seminar on the Civil War and Reconstruction with a great teacher at Columbia, a guy named James Shenton. And a great teacher can change your life. You know, this, taking that course inspired me. To, to change, to become a historian and to study that period. Now, this was the height of the civil rights era. And a lot of us wanted to know where is this coming from? Where are, there are thousands of people in the streets every day. You know, where is that coming from in American history? The history we had been taught couldn't have produced what was happening in the streets. So there was something wrong with that history. The, the history that had told us that all the problems of America were solved and, you know, nothing, there was nothing more to be done. Um, suddenly it seemed there were some problems that needed to be addressed. So, um, you know, I changed, but a lot of people did. A lot of people started. And then what did I study? My first, my dissertation, my first book was about the anti-slavery movement. I wanted to know how did they, how did they change things? How do you actually use politics to get rid of slavery? That's a pretty big thing to accomplish. Um, so the, the, my point is that the present always affects the history. It gives you the questions you're interested in, not the answers. The answers don't come out of the present, but the questions do. And those questions about how you change things for the better have been inspiring my writing of history ever since. Professor Fona, I, I can't tell you what a treat it was, not only that you just 
said all of that uh, and for all the history teacher friends of mine that that are going to be giddy over that. But um, thank you for all of your work. Um, you can check out ericfoner.com for all of his books, wherever books are sold. Go get one of my favorite books, The Second Founding. Um, and, and like I said, a former professor at Columbia University. We appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Very, very nice to talk to you guys. All right. That was noted American historian, Pulitzer Prize winning historian, Eric Foner. Like I mentioned, check out ericfoner.com. You can check out all of his books, wherever books are sold. He's written so many great books about the Civil War, Reconstruction, uh, Abraham Lincoln. Nick, you know, there's a lot there, man. I mean, I, I love some of the things he said about, you know, the education system in America, um, you know, the lessons that we're still learning. You know, he talked about his his childhood and in the 50s and 60s during the Civil War and seeing people march in the streets. And it's like, how come I didn't learn about this? You know, and it sounds eerily similar to what's happening in 2020 and 2021, man. Um, I just there was so much there with Professor Fon. What'd you make of the interview, man? I, for one, I feel validated. I, mean, <laughs> I think I've said this to you forever. Like, you know, 50 states, 50 different views of education. It's yeah. it's why there's you know there's no way to have really it's it's a struggle now to try to have a unifying discussion around um, around history. I really pref- appreciated how Professor Foner talked about. Um, just the need to have more of a th- more of a thrust around history education, right. uh, more resources being dedicated to it, more time being dedicated to it, less around STEM or you know st- um, standardized testing. I mean these other things that you know are in place now, and we're missing opportunities to have you know really rich conversations. Like, honestly, yeah. today we talked about stuff that just really was put in a way that just felt accessible to anyone who's going to listen to the show or catch video clips, obviously. Yeah. And we, we hope to just take a period of time that maybe you may not have been paying attention to in history class and it like really blow it up. I mean, he, you know, no, he was great. I'm listen, I, he said something cause I, obviously I went to school in New York state, um, throughout my entire you know life. And he said something about, you know, you could go a year without having American history. And now I'm, I'm remembering back. It's like I had it in 10th grade. I had it in 11th grade. I didn't have it senior year. You know, I don't remember having American history, at least some type of class freshman year. So like there's uh, it's funny that he mentioned that. But I just thought he, he's been doing arounds, you know, recently. You've seen him everywhere, you know, from CNN to a bunch of other different places. Uh, Face the Nation, I think he was on one day. And it's just everybody wants you know, when something happens that's unprecedented, right? It's like, well, who can we get that knows history? <laughs> and he's the go-to guy, man. And I just, there's just so many things there. I, I really, I can't stop thinking about the education part of it because we've talked about it. We talked about it with Professor Dyson. We, 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 you and I talked about it in the education episode. There's just so much of like, education being under attack in this country and it's underfunded you know professor dyson talked about you know like they don't have a problem defunding education they don't have the problem defunding schools right so um there's just i i just love that he he gave those answers but for you i feel like when navid came on in the television episode and he said everything that i told you <laughs> happened <laughs> at fox you must right. feel the same way in terms of the education space so he was great um as, as always, for our podcast, folks, so you're going to check out this episode. Nick's hitting the YouTube smash button down Come below. Come on, man. Uh, right listen to here. us across Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher. Leave us a comment in the App Store section. Uh, as always, I'm Mike Leon. We out here, everybody. I'm Nick Saveri. That's right, baby. All right. We'll see everybody next time. Later.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.